We have about uh, 20 minutes or so for questions and answers. And I had gotten a couple notes. One is pretty straightforward about Samasaya Utejaniya's material. So all of those books that we have out, as well as this handout that if you looked at the booklet under the um, bulletin board, has his 23 points about right attitude for meditation. All of that is at his website. Um, which is saidautejaniya.org, just his name. You is sort of like Mr. in Burmese. So Saida <coughs> means teacher, and then the letter U, and then his name is tejaniya.org. You'll get all the PDFs for the books and for that list. And uh, I think we also have that list. Um, yes, we do. If you go to our website under the Introduction to Mindfulness class, you'll see the handouts. There's a link for all the handouts for the intro class and that list of 23 attitudes for uh, meditation practice is there as well. And somebody asked about the best way to deal with shame arising from fear. I know this is not personal, but why am I still afraid? So that uh, feeling of being flawed or being a bad yogi and being afraid that it's true, so we generate the, the sort of the thought arises and then we're afraid it's true. So like a lot of fears, they all trace, you know, we can trace all fears really back to the feeling of annihilation or death, or however you want to talk about it. And it comes down to a fundamental lack of clarity about what this is, what this experience is. Because we uh, take this experience to be a certain way, like mine, then anything that suggests that it's going to be taken from me is, of course, as threatening as anything is. And all of that necessarily follows from somehow having a sense of being a part and owning whatever it is we think is a part from the whole. Then the possibility or the reality of being threatened just is naturally there. So it's the same with really sticky stuff like not feeling good enough. course, the key is to get out of the loop because it always feels when we're in that feeling of not being good enough or having great doubt about whether our practice goes anywhere or whether my life is going anywhere. So more generally, like, what is this about or how can is, how is this helpful even? You know, we have to step out of the loop enough to take an honest look at what's happening. And that's really the trick, is how do we step out of that shame loop or that fear loop long enough, complete enough, so that we have some clarity in the mind. And as you've been hearing this these last few days, from me and from the teachers I've been reading, you know, part of it is turning our attention to um, 
experience <clears throat> that we can have a wholesome relationship with and starting there. I mean, service is such a, in the widest sense of the word, service is such a wonderful way because we engage some project that we have a sense is good for us, good for the world. And at least in this little sliver of my life, I can give myself wholeheartedly to the task. I can naturally feel good about my participation in the world in those moments at that time. And we can step outside of any negative loop that our mind might be relatively stuck in. The other basic way is to practice not being confused by the pain of the the shame, to realize it's just pain. So we're stabilizing the attention by not assuming that the pain is dangerous. The yucky feeling isn't dangerous. So you hear a lot of that about this in, in Dharma practice, about changing our relationship to feeling tone. And the image is, you know, for an ordinary human being, before we begin to really dig into the practice, we're like one of those big water buffaloes with a little ring in our nose, and anybody who grabs the rope that's tied to the ring in the nose can make us do whatever we want because we don't want to feel the tug in the different directions. So we're literally enslaved by anybody who's strong enough to pick up the rope and tug a little bit. It doesn't matter if we actually are many, many times stronger. It's just we don't want that feeling. So we'll just, you know, push that plow around or drag that cart or whatever. And it's the same with feeling tone. You know, we have a little nudgy feeling tone, or even sometimes the yucky feeling tone is just the anticipation that there may be a a yucky feeling tone later. That itself is a yucky feeling tone, imagining that this is going to hurt. So I better stock up on pleasant things, you know. And then we neurotically have to do that, and it just uh, agitates the mind. And we... We basically, like quicksand, we just get deeper and deeper into the muck the more we believe that somebody is actually threatened by feeling tone, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling tone. And that's the basic mistake that we humans make, is we misunderstand, misinterpret feeling tone. And it's not that feeling tone doesn't come with some information, you know, we're touching a hot stove, that's important feedback. The the pain of that heat on our hand is important feedback about, you know, if I don't move my hand, it's really going to burn. But we don't need to construct a me who doesn't like the painful sensations of heat in order to remove our hand away. It can be much more simple. And... Part of the simplicity of that is really understanding what the information is. Because some pain has to do with something that's being done right now that's dangerous or not helpful. And some pain is just the residual of what was done in the past that was unskillful. That pain we don't need to run from. It's neurotic to run from that pain. 
that pain is basically saying, honey, don't do that again. We don't have to do anything except it's like a gift telling us, honey, don't do that again. We don't want to close it down or hide from it or run to get rid of it. It's actually valuable information. Oh, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't very smart. I'm not going to do that again. I mean, just like in a sit, <clears throat> if we take the bait and start thinking about our to-do list and just chugging away for 10 minutes and we realize it and that yucky feeling in the body being all bound up from having been thinking so intensely about our to-do list or whatever, it would be quite natural to want to fix our practice because it's yucky. It's like do some dharma move that will make that yucky go away. But it's much more skillful to acknowledge, oh, this yucky feeling, the body being bound up, this yucky feeling is gold. It's like priceless. I'm going to sit right in the middle of it. It's telling me, don't do that again. And we have to really let it in. That's how our habit changes. It's like, to the degree we feel the results of our habit, to that degree the habit gets worn out, gets uh, uprooted. If we're unwilling to feel the effects of our not-so-skillful habits, they just continue. There's no way for a habit to change unless we take in the information, the results of that habit. Same with positive, skillful habits. So anyway, those are just some thoughts about that shame, fear, shame cycle. Other questions? We have about uh, ten minutes. That's one. Um, so all the talk on on fear and pain is really interesting and, and it feels helpful. And just like you just mentioned, it can be kind of spiritual gold. And it sort of engenders a feeling of hopefulness in me. And I know there's also sort of the, the, the talk of, or the idea of hope and fear being the same side of, you know, same, different sides of the same mm-hmm. coin. And I'm wondering if, if there's, is that like a different kind of hope? Is that more of a spiritual hope? Yeah. So what was that line? The demons lie in hiding on the steep slope of fear and hope. Is that hope and fear? Something Something like that, that, yeah. yeah. That we set ourselves up. And, uh, yeah, so it's, and I was going to suggest this anyway to to reflect today, this morning, before we end on refuge, just to create a, a deeper imprint in our mind so that maybe we start making the refuges a very active and real part of our spiritual practices and not just the ceremonial thing we do once in a while when we're at a more formal Buddhist event. But really, like how do we activate this faith that that freedom is possible? How do we do that in a skillful way that's not just dualistic? You know, this is miserable, and then we imagine transcendent heaven where I'm not miserable. And then we end up hating and having a more negative attitude about our world because we have this transcendent idea which makes the ordinary reality seem less inhabitable. So the key is that our refuge needs to be a mature refuge. You know, not I wouldn't use just the 
make the distinction. Don't use the word hope. Use something like aspiration or refuge. It has to be more mature in the sense that how we bring our refuge to mind has to have to do with this immediate moment. It can't be abstract or hypothetical or theoretical or later. It has to be what we're bringing to mind, what we, what inspires, um, like, uh, a sense of energy to practice has to be, uh, about what's intuited here and now. The possibility of freedom here and now or release here and now or this weight isn't what it appears to be right now. It, it's not what it appears to be. I don't really believe this is as heavy as it seems. I mean, this is one of the things people report most often in small groups and one-on-ones as a kind of progress, which is they're thrashing about like they've always thrashed about with some difficulty in their life, a relationship problem or self-esteem issue. But as they describe it, there's this sense of space that understands, okay, this is what's happening. So it, it's a little lighter, more porous, less believable. And so the refuge, like with the mind, the heart intu- intuits, is that whatever this progress was, if that just develops, then this won't be a problem. And if this isn't a problem, there's a really good chance that nothing's a problem, right? Because every time we can, we learn to inhabit our life in a place where we couldn't used to, didn't used to be at ease and clear and alive, it always begs the question, well, maybe everything's workable. Absolutely everything, including death and loss and praise and, you know, the whole gamut of human experience. Maybe it's all workable. So I think that's why we need to work out refuge is it has to go from idealistic to immediate, real, based on our actual experience, our actual intuitive sense of freedom, of release. And we just have to be really honest that we start out, it's very idealistic and theoretical. We're inspired by the stories, basically. And not much of a different way than I was inspired by heaven and hell when I was a kid growing up as a Catholic. So we start with that. The difference is we're handed this methodology to go check it out in the immediacy of our experience. And if we don't do that, it just remains theoretical. And it's like another hope, like you say. So we have to ground it so that we're intuiting its immediacy, the immediacy of freedom. So whenever you think, have this very confident idea, I need to practice in order to become enlightened, you want to be suspicious of that idea. Now, I I understand, we all understand it sort of makes sense to say that, but it's sort of a setup to say that too, because it implies, one, there's a person who's not enlightened, who has to work hard to get somewhere. And you see, that's the basic problem, that conception that there's basically me who's screwed, and then you can just fill in the blank why I'm screwed, <laughs> who has to get unscrewed in order to be free. And 
because we're always attempting to tackle the problem from the self-view, it always just turns the screw tighter because the approach is based on self-view. So we language matters here. <clears throat> it also can be a setup to pretend that we're already free and nothing's a problem. Because then when we actually end up suffering and we can't fake it anymore, we feel very embarrassed <laughs> for having assumed that there wasn't any more suffering, that it's all free. Because there we are miserable, now we can't hide from it anymore, and now we really don't know what's up. So <clears throat> somewhere between pretending it's all okay and pretending I'm bad and I have to become good, I have to get somewhere where I won't be suffering anymore. Neither are those two. And I think part of it, and I noticed it's just in the moment to moment of my regular, you know, daily practice, formal and informal practice, this plays out. It's like, what is my, what is the heart, the mind's relationship with the present moment? Does it actually respect it as relevant? the facts on the ground, like how the body feels, what the mind's activity is. Do we actually, are we actually interested in it as if it were relevant for what's most important? And I have to say, for me, a lot of the time, I'm not. I mean, it, it kind of stuns me to see how negligent my mind is about present moment experience under some illusion that later, or I got to do this, you know, no, it's always about this suffering freedom now. That's what the Buddha meant when he's, you know, he kind of put everything aside. So I only teach suffering in the end of suffering. He was talking moment to moment to moment. That that's what it's about. It's either here or we're not practicing. We're either practicing in this moment. We're actually have some intuitive sense that the dynamic of suffering and non-suffering is happening right here. We're not like building up to it, but it's happening right here. And that kind of interest makes all the difference. And if we can just even have a handful of those moments in a 45-minute sit, it's a good sit, you know, where we're really there with the right attitude, learning from what's happening, what's coming and going. Yeah, Nina. Um... I feel like I've been kind of confused working with that. Um, I've uh, been having just a lot of pain with sitting, like sitting, and I have been previously, like the last couple of weeks, abandoned sitting a lot in my life. Like I've been standing desk, and I've just been having a lot of pain sitting for a lot of time, and so it's been very painful to sit and kind of feeling like. Don't understand, or or you know, I've been really trying to watch my intentions with, um, in, you know, am I trying to just avoid the pain? Um, I'm afraid of it. You know, what is that experience of pain? And trying to ask questions about it and, and learn more about the experience of pain. And then sometimes just feeling like this isn't kind to my body to be making it do this. Like, it's not what it wants. It's not. So, I was, it's just been hard to figure out 
you know, what's the choice my heart from my heart? And what's the choice from fear? And is there a right time to not do something for yourself that's painful? Yeah. Yeah, I have that same issue. I bet a lot of us do in terms of dealing with body pain. And uh, it seems like in practice there are times when um, the physical discomfort is more deep and less based on superficial things, like injuries and stuff like that. And that you can't really run from. That's, that, that's my sense. And so it's more like setting up the conditions to more fully surrender and submit and psychologically speaking, die to th- those really yucky sensations. You know, it's interesting, even if we just always practice in savasana, that also would become unbearable, you know, that posture. So it's like we can't run from it. But So that's one thing. The other is just respecting that the practice unfolds more naturally when we're not overwhelmed by discomfort. So to do more walking, to do some lying down, practice every day, a couple times a day in your room or in the other room here, um, to, to alternate between sitting and standing here in this room or wherever you practice, you know, just to move from sitting to standing at some interval. So you sit for 15, you stand for 10, you sit for 15, something like that. Because uh, we don't want to conceive of the practice as being dependent on a certain health or, uh, yeah, basic health of the body, right? So if the body just has a lot of physical discomfort because of all kinds of reasons, it shouldn't be a reason not to practice. We should be able to modify the unpleasantness so it's workable. Knowing that there are times in practice when there's no way to modify it, and running from it ends up, at some point, becoming more painful than just a full, wholehearted submission to it. It's not necessarily that frequent, but we really have to be ready when that shows up, and we just start catching ourselves, getting more and more anxious, more and more tight, avoiding the discomfort of the body. And then it's like we prepare for our death, you know, We create suitable conditions. We bring up the confidence that we have. We really know that running doesn't work. And and we have a sense that we're not damaging the body on a superficial level. And then we just submit to it as best we can. Even if the body thrashes around. I mean, we don't... Stillness is really important in that and trusting relaxation no matter what happens. But there will be times when the mind will reach its limit and it will instinctively move or thrash or whatever. Like, But then we're right back. We want to go right back in it. And sometimes then it's like you go through, like, like Joko Beck says, a bottleneck and go out the other end. And it's it can be very surprising. What was as intense and big as anything isn't there anymore. And it just, we were so convinced that had a solidity, a reality that was like part of what makes it so heavy is the mind is convinced this is who I am, this will always be this way. That's what's so scary about it. And then when it goes away, 
It's just so interesting. And you'll find yourself looking for it. I mean, it's the most neurotic thing. It's like, we don't trust. Like, we don't trust our actual experience, which is, it's not here. Yeah, and then we'll have to end, Tom. Okay. I, um, when, uh, <clears throat> when I've been, you know, doing the meditation of kind of body scanning and or um, uh, thinking about you know being calm, uh, being joyful, all of a sudden um, a problem that I've had shows up and I often find an answer, at least some kind of an answer to that problem, like something that feels better than what I have. Mm-hmm. And then I have this feeling that, oh, I'm not thinking about, you know, my body sensation. I've moved into thinking about something else, but it helped me. And then I just come back to, I mean, eventually come back to it. Because it sort of drives me nuts to, to think about the solution very large as well. But, because then it, then it gets, I think, distorted. But... I, I, it doesn't feel like I'm supposed to be doing that somehow. I'm just feeling that I'm not doing it right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many different versions of those creativity attacks because the mind, the mind is calm and there's a more of a mind-body integration. And so what, when that, that more integrated, more whole, less fragmented heart-mind-body remembers something, it's going to remember it or see it or know it in a non-fragmented, more whole, more integrated way. And so the response, how we see it, how we understand it, what we think needs to be done, will be coming out of that more whole, integrated, non-fragmented way of understanding. But that's not meditation. That's reflecting deeply about the problems or the issues in our lives, which we should do. And we should find ways to come into that more whole, non-fragmented, kind presence and we bring up our relationship or bring up our work life or bring up, you know, our relationship with our parents or these things that tend to, you know, have a lot of juice or a lot of complications. So when it comes up in practice, it's it's appropriate to appreciate, especially in the first moment, if you catch it in the first moment, like, like the clarity, like appreciate, as a way of just appreciating that that more whole, holistic presence is just fundamentally skillful. Of course, you want to think about this. Of course, you want to solve this problem. And you should later, you know. Like when you're driving home, that could be a good time if the traffic's not too busy, you know. Just to bring something up, throw it into that wide, deep pool of presence, present moment awareness, and just see what happens. See how the mind understands that issue in your life. So we, we, you know, ideally we do both. We'd have our hour or more a day to sit in this formal way, and then we'd have some time that we just structure in to our schedule where we reflect deeply about what needs to be reflected deeply on. And it, ideally, it could be right after the meditation. You know, it's a good time. Some people journal, you know, or some people 
who are sitting with a dear friend, sometimes talking with a dear friend about some of these things is another way to have a more creative response to some of the sticky issues in life. Couples who both practice, they've had, you know, I remember Craig Vollmer and Alice Vollmer, they'd for years and years would sit, they'd do a little reading, I think they took turns deciding what to read, and then they'd talk and have their breakfast together. And it really changed their marriage doing that uh, for many, many years. So we should probably end it here. So um, people who have the one-on-one interviews to help me keep them to 10 minutes, that would be helpful. And we'll have walking and then one more sit. And then, Kevin, maybe end that sit at 10 to 11 so there's time for people to use the toilet. And we'll try to start the circle at 5 to 11, the closing circle at 5 to 11. And remember, we'll keep noble silence until the closing circle time. Good. Enjoy your last few hours of the practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.